0: A couple of years ago, uh, it was a summer Sunday morning and uh, we had a guest preacher that day. And so I was sitting in the back and it was hot. The doors were open and you could hear the traffic going by as the service progressed. And um, as I listened to that, something came to my mind. I I wonder what the people driving by think about what we're doing. You know, see the cars in the parking lot, see the doors open. I wonder what they think about it. I suspect there were probably are some who are saying, why would you do that when you can be out on a golf course somewhere? Or why would you do that when you could sleep in a little bit? Why would you go, why would you spend an hour or more in this hot, stuffy place with people that you may or may not like, who instead of sitting on your deck reading the newspaper. Why would you do these things? Why would you do that? And I guess that for a lot of people driving by, if they thought about it, if they paid any attention to it, they would be asking the question, why do we do this? And it struck me that maybe that's not such a bad question for us to ask ourselves. Why do we do this? Why do we come together for worship every Sunday? Why do we... Participate in Bible studies and prayer groups. Why do we have Sunday school? Why do we do ministry for children and youth? Why do we do all of these things? Why do we practice the spiritual disciplines? Why, why do we do all the things that we do? I think there's a bit of that question that John is answering as he comes to the conclusion... Of the 20th chapter of his gospel. Now this is. When you read the gospel. You get a sense that this is the conclusion. And then chapter 21. Is sort of an addendum. That after he finished that. He went oh wait. There's one more thing I want to say. And he tells the story of Jesus. And the disciples catching fish. And the the end of it. But this you get the sense. This is that he's concluding what he's written. And what John says in verses 30 and 31, are that he is, he is sort of encapsulating everything he said before this way. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may have, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, I have presented signs for you. Now, if you go back, we read the beginning, some verses from John chapter 1, where he sets the stage for all the rest of the gospel, and he begins by talking about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is, is God in flesh. We, had never, we never were able to see God, but now we've seen Jesus, and we've seen God in all the fullness of his glory and truth. This is who Jesus is, and John spends the rest of the gospel fleshing that out. And he says here that he has, he's talked about signs. Now, I don't know exactly why John picks the signs that he does, because as he says, there were a whole lot more. At the end of chapter 21, he says, if everything that was written down could be written about Jesus were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all of it. I suspect that's hyperbole, but nevertheless, he's making the point. There's a lot of stuff that he could have written about Jesus, and he narrows it down. Most scholars would say he narrows it down to seven signs. When we go through the book of John, there is the turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. There's healing the royal official's son. There is the, the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda. There is the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walking on water. Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And and John says, I've only given you these seven signs, but they ought to be enough. These signs ought to be enough. Now, this idea of signs is is really an Old Testament idea. When you read about signs, it it makes me think back to the passage we read in Genesis chapter 9... God, in chapter 6, God calls Noah, build an ark, I'm going to start all over again, and I'm going to flood the earth with water, and so Noah builds the ark, and it begins to rain, and you know, we've thought we've gotten a lot of rain over the last few weeks, and the ground's pretty wet, 40 days and 40 nights of continual rain, and I have in my mind torrential downpour, such that after 40 days, the whole earth is flooded. And when it's done, and when the rain ends, and after months, the water recedes, and finally Noah and his family and the animals can exit the ark on dry ground, God says, all right, now I'm going to do something. I'm going to tell you something, Noah. I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm I'm going to set up a covenant with you. I'm never going to do that again. And here's the sign of my covenant. Here is the sign. The rainbow I'm going to put in the sky. When I read that passage, I get the sense that that was the very first rainbow. I had a professor in college who was a scholar in the Old Testament. And he would be teaching away and all of a sudden he would be looking out, look out the window and he just stop. He might, he'd stare out the window for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. And we're all wondering what's going on. And we look out the window and invariably there was a rainbow. And he was so in tune with this sign and the meaning of the rainbow that he just stopped whatever he was doing and just pondered it. Because when he looked at that rainbow, he understood probably more, I'm sure, more than any of us sitting in that classroom, what that meant. The sign of the presence of God, the promise of God, the very nature and character of who God is, is in that rainbow. I think we probably take them for granted. It's a sign. It's a revelation of of the nature and the character of God and the promises of God. And John says that these signs he gives to us reveal the nature and the character of Jesus. And he says the nature and the character of Jesus is that he is the long-awaited one. The one that the prophets in the Old Testament and Moses and even all the way back to Genesis, all of these people, everything they've been talking about, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And here are the signs. There are places in John where people come to Jesus and says, you have to be the Messiah. What other signs could you give us? To believe that he is the very embodiment, the very presence, God in flesh. And when we think about who God is, we look at Jesus. And John says, you believe that. That's what these signs are pointing you to. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. And everything we know about God is embodied in Jesus. This is the very nature and the character of who God is. But he says, "To believe that is to understand that that Jesus comes to give life. That God's intent from the very beginning of creation is to give life, to give to give us a life of flourishing." This is what God intended for all of his children from the very beginning. When you read the book of Genesis and human beings are created, God breathes life into them. And he says, now be fruitful, multiply, flourish. This is what he's talking about. I think we tend to think of life as being purely spiritual. And it certainly is that, but it's so much more than that. When God says to, to Adam and Eve, I want you to flourish, it's not just I want, you to be, I want you to be holy spiritual people. But he says, I want you to flourish in every part of your being. And isn't it interesting that the signs that John, that John uh, writes about in the gospel on the surface really aren't even that spiritual? Turning water into wine. Some people they would say that's not being spiritual. He's healing people of their illness and their disease. He is feeding people who are hungry. And it, it it just reminds us that the gospel is not just about our souls, it's about every part of our being. And when God creates us to flourish, it creates us to flourish in everything that we are. It is a holistic flourishing. We are not dualists. The material world is not bad. It's good. It's created by God. And when Jesus comes to redeem and transform the world, it is all that God has created. Every part of our being. This is life. This is flourishing. And it is our spirits. It is forgiveness of sin. It probably starts there. But these other things, not. it's not like the signs are a hook. Jesus doesn't commit, create, do miracles to say, I'm going to do a miracle to hook you in and then I'll tell you what I really want to tell you. You know, sometimes that's our evangelistic strategy. We'll do something nice for someone so that they'll listen to us talk about what we really want to talk about. But the gospel is, we just love people. And God wants to change us every part of our being and give us life, full life. This is, the, this is what he's given us. And that life is freedom. He wants to set us free. We often think of freedom as I get to do what I want, when I want, however I want. But that doesn't usually lead to freedom. That usually leads us just deeper into bondage. Because the freedom that that Jesus comes to give is freedom from having to prove ourselves worthy. Because we know we're worthy in him. It's freedom that sets us free to love Even people who don't love us. It's freedom to forgive even when we want to hold on to that hurt. It's it's freedom to, to serve even when we realize we probably will be used and manipulated and trampled on. It is a freedom that's rooted in the resurrection, that God in Christ has conquered death and every other enemy, everything else about life, and we have freedom to just give ourselves away. It's freedom to be generous with what we have because we believe God supplies our needs. It's freedom to use our gifts and talents to help people because we believe that God is going to do more with those than we could ever dream possible. There is this freedom of just living and letting go. And it comes from Jesus. But the key element of that, John says twice here, is to believe. As we talked last week, to believe is not just mental assent. It is to engage ourselves. It's always thinking that leads to action. It's speaking that leads to action. And if it never leads to action, then we have to question, do we really believe? I said to you, As I said to you last week... I can tell you I believe the earth is round, but if I'm afraid to get on a ship and sail across the sea because I think we might fall off, you have to wonder, do I really believe the earth is round? And if we say, I trust Jesus, but we aren't willing to be generous with what we have, we aren't willing to serve, we aren't willing to love, we aren't willing to risk, then we have to question, do we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And John's talking about this kind of belief that risks, this kind of belief that's all in with Jesus. This kind of belief that's willing to be hurt because we believe Jesus is bigger than our hurts and our pains. A.J. Swoboda says that Scripture doesn't really distinguish between believing and trying. I think he's right. Because to believe is to try. To believe is to do something, to believe is to get involved, to believe is to risk, to believe is to stick on our necks, to act in some form, to try. We often think belief means we've got it all figured out, we have everything in a box, and now we'll proceed because it's safe. I would suggest that believing is never safe. But then the kingdom is never about being safe. It's about trusting Jesus. It's about believing that God is good and merciful and that he always wants what is best for us and that following him always leads to a life of flourishing despite the difficulties and the pains and the struggles that we're going to go through. And not following him ultimately is going to lead us to destruction and death. And believing is trusting that is true. I remember reading years ago about a missionary, I think in the 19th century, who had gone to the South Sea Islands and was translating the scriptures into the the language of the people there. And and he had lived there for quite a while, had become friends with the people as he went through the translation process, but he could not figure out a, a word to translate believe. They didn't have a word like that in their language, and he just couldn't quite get it. And he, he kept thinking and listening, trying to find stories and examples or something that would trigger for them what it means to believe. And days went into weeks and weeks into months, and he didn't think he was ever going to get it. And finally, one day, he was working in his, in his little house where he was, and, and one of the people came in and just plopped down the chair. They said, I am so tired. It is so good just to, just to put my full weight on this chair. And he said, the light went on and I realized that's what it means to believe. To put our full weight. Just relax. To just trust Jesus. Realizing that trusting Jesus might lead us into more pain than not trusting Jesus. It might lead us to more struggles and difficulties than not trusting Jesus. But ultimately, it leads to life and to flourishing. To believe. Scholars are divided about these two words, believe. Whether they are in the Greek language, whether they are present tense or aorist tense. And uh, they're actually split about 50-50, and you look at different translations, and you'll, you'll see different translations of that back and forth. And the difference is, in the simplest of terms, if it's aorist tense, it means it's something that has happened, and then you see the ongoing results. So, for instance, yesterday we came and we worked around the church. That happened yesterday, but today we're still seeing the results of it. And we will for a while. It's a moment in time. It's an action in time that's done, finished. But the present tense has more of a a nuance of ongoing action. It's not just one moment and then you see the results, but it's, it's continuing to do the thing over and over and over again. So in essence, we would say every Saturday we're going to come back and keep working on the church. I'm thinking, so it's a sense of you believe one time, you have a one-time moment of belief and then your life flows from that. Or you you are continually believing. And I'm wondering, why can't it be both? Maybe that was John's point. It's both. We have moments in our lives where we come to these forks in the road and we, we have to determine... And there are significant mile markers in our lives where we believe... And it's about something specific. It might be our first encounter with Jesus. It might be other encounters with Jesus. But but there are these profound moments, the kind of moments that you you journal about, the kind of moments that you write in your Bible about, the kind of moments that you never forget. But often we think those are the only things that we do about believing when the reality is believing is a daily moment-by-moment process. And I wonder sometimes if the most profound way to believe is in the day-to-day moments more than those monumental moments. I think they feed off each other. We need them both. But it's not enough to say, well, I had, a, I had an experience with God 20 years ago. As awesome as that is, the real question is, but are you having believing moments with God all the time? Because life presents us with opportunities to believe all the time. We never run out of them. It is that daily kind of believing that says, I don't, I don't know what life's going to bring, but I I want, I'm going to try. My, my passion, my goal is to say yes to Jesus. To trust Jesus. And that is the pathway to life. There's one other turn to this passage that I want us to think about. John says, I presented these signs to you for the purpose of hoping to help you see Jesus in such a way that you will believe in a moment and day to day. And it strikes me that if the church is the visible presence of Jesus in this world, then perhaps the church now, becomes the signs that point people to Jesus. That how we live our lives individually and corporately are signs to each other and to other people. This is what Jesus is like. This is what God is like. This is what the kingdom is like. And we live our lives individually and corporately in such a way that we are continually revealing Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. We become the signs because God in us gives us the privilege and the responsibility to help people see Jesus. How else will people know what Jesus is like unless they spend time with the people who follow Jesus? The church. So tonight, one of the things we're going to do, besides worshiping together and singing and praying and sharing, we're also going to spend some time thinking about what would it look like? What does it look like? What could it look like for the, us as the church, as this church, to be the signs that point people to Jesus? What we do corporately, what we do individually, what might that look like? How might we be signs what can we do? What can we be? What can we say? How do we think? How do we shape ourselves together? That we might be signs that point people to Jesus. One of the ways we do that is just coming together for worship. When people wondering what we're doing here, we are helping each other become better signs that do a better job of revealing Jesus. And we come to this table this morning both remembering what Jesus has done and looking to what Jesus has promised to do. And we come to this table recognizing that in some ways this is a sign, this is a, a profound, mystical, mysterious in many ways sign Of our desire to believe because we know who Jesus is. We believe Jesus is who he says he is, and we want to live a life that exudes that belief and inspires that belief in each other and in other people. It is a table that invites us to remember the past and to give thanks for the present and the future. And so my question for us today is, do we believe? Do we believe enough that we are willing to take the responsibility and embrace the privilege of being signs to point people to Jesus? Father, thank you for this privilege, and this responsibility. We pray that you will give us the ability to believe, to see, to understand, to trust you. We thank you, Father, for this table. We pray your divine blessing, your anointing, Upon the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we may know the presence of the living Christ, and be filled with his grace to believe. We ask this in his name. Amen.